This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Casey Olander. I'm the web content specialist here at the Hendricks Center at DTS. And today, our topic is trauma. Um, we did do an episode about this already, if you're curious. Um, that gave an overview of this topic, an introduction to trauma. It was episode number 548, and it was called Understanding Trauma. So if you haven't heard that, we would commend it to you, encourage you to go listen to that. It was first released in April of 2023. So give it a listen if you're new to this topic or if you're just interested. We also, um, before we jump into our conversation, uh, do want to say, perhaps you deduced this from the title of the episode, but some of the subject matter might be uh, difficult for people or, or kind of heavy, um, hard to listen to um, in the fact that we're addressing, uh, um, yeah, the topic of trauma. So we would uh, caution you in that um, and uh, if you're not in a spot for it, we would encourage you to listen to some of our other content. We have episodes about things like friendship and fashion. So if you'd prefer that, if you'd rather have a lighter topic for today, <laughs> enjoy that. Um, but if you're interested in trauma, if you're like, I'm good to go and I'm ready, then we'll jump into our conversation. So today we're joined by Dr. Andy Thacker. She's Associate Professor of Counseling Ministries at DTS. Andy, thanks for being back with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. We're also joined this time by Josh Freeman. He is Adjunct Professor of Counseling Ministries here at DTS, and he's also Director of Counseling at Dallas Life Homeless Recovery Center. So thanks for being with us, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I mentioned that we did this previous episode about trauma that gave just a broad overview of the topic. We uh, defined trauma as anything that shocks the system, anything that it could be too much, too little, uh, anything that sends a person's nervous system into fight or flight or a shutdown. Um, so that was kind of the, the definition that we're working with. Um, but we also, Andy's hot take from our last episode was that Trauma is not just like a niche group of people that it applies to, but we said that everyone has experienced trauma. So it's not just maybe a distant relative or somebody that, um, yeah, is a small subset of the population, but rather that everyone has experienced trauma. So this is a an episode that is appropriate and, um, yeah, applicable to literally everyone. Mm -hmm since we live in a fallen world. So in this episode, we're gonna hope to focus on types of trauma. We might get a little bit more specific about the causes and the effects. Um, we'll still do kind of a high level overview of these things um, since we don't really have time to plumb the depths uh, in the next you know, 45 minutes or so. Um, but we'll get a little bit more um, specific into what trauma might look like and how it could affect um, our society and the places that we live. And so, um, yeah, I guess, Andy, why don't I start with you and asking, um, what is the importance of learning about trauma, about types of trauma? Um, how could this, yeah, how could this be a value to, to our listeners? Yeah, well, I think because most everyone walks around with some sort of impact from trauma, we, we have the potential to either use that for healing or hurt others mm. because of our unresolved experiences. So part of it is just being safe and not acting out of the brokenness 
that we find ourselves in. Sure. If we're not aware of something, then mm-hmm. we can't address it. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, anything to add to that? I think that's exactly right. I think we're often walking around um, unaware of what's happening with us. And so a growing awareness of our own experience, our our own history, and then as well as what we've experienced and how it is either limiting us or um, or uh, being a limitation or, or hurting, causing harm to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we want to be able to, I think you mentioned being safe like for other people and also finding healing and wholeness that we can encourage one another towards that end and also that we can make steps towards that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what are y'all's thoughts about why maybe this hasn't been addressed as much historically and, and why um, this is an important topic for, for right now? Um, I, I think it's uncomfortable. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I, there, there, are, there are a number of authors that would say this has been addressed historically, but in various contexts. And then inevitably we get too uncomfortable with it and we say, no, 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 we're going to relegate that to, to like, we're just going to not talk about it anymore. Mm. And then something else comes up. And so I think um, it is uncomfortable uh, for us to, to recognize our own limitations, maybe um, coming to grips with the reality of a broken world world or that things might be less than ideal for us and maybe for the rest of our lives or unideal for other people that we love and maybe for the rest of their lives too. So it's an uncomfortable topic. Um, And I think that's why we often try to minimize it for ourselves. I can just get over this um, or I can... uh, or, or you should get over this, right? Like, we, we start using that language. Yeah. If it's inherently something that is, like, too much for our systems, then, of course, it makes sense that we'd be like, well, I'd rather not talk about that. Like, I'd rather not address it, push it aside. Yeah. Anything to add? Yeah, I think it's grief-inducing, too. And that discomfort, we're having to sit with an uncomfortable feeling. And like Josh said, it may never be resolved, this side of heaven. And that does not feel good. Yeah, yeah. even saying that. I can sense that my body's like, yep, nope, I don't like that. Don't like that. And the, and and it's complicated in that, oftentimes, especially if you if you look historically for the last forty years, we have been approaching problems as I need to understand it, I need to intellectualize it. If I can understand it in my mind, then I can have power over it. And this is something that's complicated in that it affects, it does affect our mind, our will, and our emotions. It also affects our body. Um, And so, and and there's a lot of things that make us uncomfortable with any one or multiple of all of those things. Yes, that's a good thought too. We're integrated human beings. We're not just souls or just bodies, but the fact that we could be so affected by the world that we live in can also be alarming mm-hmm. and potentially discouraging for people mm-hmm. if we're not like, okay, I'm just gonna solve this easy peasy three-step problem mm-hmm. and then we'll be on the other side of it. Like, yeah, it may not happen that way. Yeah. And a little, a, a little, uh, cheekily i guess that a lot of us want to assume that the rules don't apply to us which we we want to think that we're special we're unique and i might be able to help you with this but obviously i'm not going to experience it the same way and then when we do experience it our self-concept our understanding our maybe even our value gets messed up with this too mm-hmm. it, it, it it hits all of those nerves for us yeah when in reality, I mean, it's part of being human as opposed to, like, if trauma affects everyone, it's not just a particularly weak subset of the population or anything like that. It is a universal reality that all of us are uh, living with and, and walking through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So as far as what trauma might look like, and we talked about, um, yeah, how it can be caused by a number of different things, depending on the person, the situation, everyone's different. Um, but are there like certain categories of trauma? Are there like, are we about to talk about the five types of trauma? Then we can just <laughs> understand them and then organize them easily. Or um, how are there how are there ways to to categorize trauma? Well, that's part of the complicated nature of it. Is there's not one set universal understanding of there's these five types. Different authors and researchers have put forth different categories. Some broad brushstrokes would be chronic versus acute, um, big T versus little t, which we referenced in the last podcast, um, complex versus not complex. So there's those are kind of broad brushstrokes, but again, it's complicated because we don't have this like really cut and dry set. You fall right in this category here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of some of the like difficulty and nuances that we've been addressing. Like not only is it difficult, maybe like emotionally for us to talk about, it also is kind of hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and making that even more complicated is the fact that it is subjective. Mm-hmm. So two people in the same experience might might experience it very differently. The repercussions might be one person might experience it as very traumatic and experience PTSD symptoms, and another person might be able to um, assimilate the experience that happened to them, and they will not experience it as traumatic or experience PTSD symptoms. Yeah. So it is very subjective, and that and it also is comp- more <laughs> added to that complexity is the fact that um, the logic gets thrown out the window sometimes. So somebody might perceive a threat that might not even be there, mm-hmm. and they experience it as traumatic. And so then somebody goes, well, that that didn't even happen. That wasn't even a threat. That wasn't even a – and it's like, but the perceived threat, the subjective experience makes it difficult to um, – to make it a one-size-fits-all. It's, 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 that's why it's um, personalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Andy, you talked about things, for example, like um, acute versus chronic trauma. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit? Like, what are, the, what are the differences? What do those terms mean? Yeah, so acute is short-lived, maybe one event, whereas chronic is an ongoing type of traumatic experience. So... Um, chronic might be um, microaggressions or um, living with um, food insecurity, um, things that are not easily resolved. It could be caring for an aging parent. There, there's so many things that don't ever get resolved this side of heaven. Um, acute may be like a natural disaster. Um, now, would you add to that, Josh? Yeah, acute could be something like even just a a uh, traumatic pr- uh, pregnancy or traumatic delivery, mm-hmm. right? Something that lots of people experience, but it is experienced that that time, and then it has long-reaching effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, are there um, particular subsets of the population that might be a little more prone to experience one or the other, um, or is it kind of just dependent on the the time frame? I think it's really dependent upon the time frame. Also, like Josh said, it's subjective. So we all carry different resources within our bodies. Also within, um, you know, we have different resources monetarily that impact how we can deal with things. 
So depending upon the resources that we have at our disposal, that can really impact who is more susceptible. A lot of times kids or anyone who is um, doesn't have as much agency or choice is more at risk because they don't have the power inherent to escape, to change the circumstances. So, I mean, my six-year-old is far more at risk than I am because he doesn't, he can't get in his car and flee. He can't, you know, go to the bank and get something because he doesn't have a checking account. Like, Mm -hmm. he's just, he is potentially more of a greater risk. He also hasn't had as much time to live to grow his internal resources. So ideally, I should have more resources than he does psychosocially and emotionally um, at my disposal. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would say that that is with along with that like he doesn't have as much um, autonomy or agency mm-hmm. and he's a lot more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would add though that especially given the person that might be listening to this, um, there are there are vocations that are innately more risk. Uh, presenting, mm-hmm. such as working uh, as a firefighter, a police officer, that we think, oh, that person is going to be both under the chronic uh, the chronic stressors that can produce trauma, uh, such as I don't know when I'm going to get called out to a really hard call, yeah. or um, they also have a higher uh, probability of a single or acute um aspect of trauma, mm-hmm. right? Where something might happen that they go, oh, this is life altering. I understand that tonight my life is different and I have a new perspective from here on out. Yeah. But in addition to those that we would normally think of, the police officers, the firefighters, the military, um, I think the helping profession is much more at risk of, of experiencing trauma. And that's because we're working with people who are more vulnerable. Our prevalence for vicarious trauma or experiencing my trauma through somebody else um, uh, is is much greater as as well. So people that work, uh, youth workers at, at churches, people that work it, it, in schools, um, but then also pastors and ministry leaders, um, that much higher risk. Yeah, yeah. So in addition to the acute and um, chronic trauma, there also you mentioned vicarious trauma. Um, are the symptoms of these different kinds uh, might they all look similar, or are there kind of some distinctions that you would uh, identify? I think I think by and large they look very similar. Yeah, I, I think when we're looking at trauma symptoms, they often look very. You have to start getting much more in the weeds to start separating what some of this looks like. Um, but I would say. The acute would be more like the PTSD experiences. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that uh, hyper arousal or the hyper vigilant, um, you know, the the constant threat that that I'm experiencing, where I could jump into a different state of mind, um, versus the the chronic, where I've developed a a mindset that I've incorporated more into my working life, and that might be a little bit harder to. Uh, assess in myself or see in other people. I might even see them as strengths in other people because they were mm-hmm. effective coping strategies when I was going through my co- chronic trauma. Sure. Yeah. Anything to add to that? Mm, I think that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So how are these things best addressed? Do we address them differently if, for example, vicarious trauma, if you're hearing from somebody else, do we address that differently than um, something that uh, like you just experienced today? So for example, like a car accident or something like that? <laughs> um, so do we experience, do we address it differently in ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we experience it very differently in ourselves. Um, I think the, the, the goal would be for me to be a, a healthy, congruent person that's able to incorporate into my nervous system, my body, as well as my mind and my emotions, what I experienced. And for me to have community that I can process that with so that this thing that I experienced doesn't doesn't get locked in an unhealthy pattern Mm -hmm. and so whether i'm whether that means in my in a session that i have with a client or a supervision i have with a counselor um, where i'm experiencing things from uh, from their story that i'm experiencing or if i experience a car wreck on my drive home i'm wanting to go i'm wanting to close the loop on the whole experience for me Mm -hmm. either way like to give it some sort of like resolution and make sure you relegate it like to the past. Is that what you mean by close the loop? Um, not relegated to the past necessarily, but um, where um, this arousal that happens, like my nervous system goes crazy, um, that uh, I incorporate that into my into my life, and I don't then try to hide it. I don't try to push it down. I don't try to avoid it, um, so that it gets it gets locked and comes back up in a in an unhealthy way Mm -hmm. when you don't expect it maybe Mm -hmm. okay so what about addressing these different kinds um for other people um would it be a different way that you would address somebody who has acute trauma versus uh, chronic trauma that all kind of depends on the model that a clinician ascribes to so there's various different models that talk about addressing trauma Um, when we're talking about the lay person who's spending time with someone that they care about um, or uh, a church worker who's ministering to someone, um, their approach to addressing these things is going to stay kind of um, more kind of higher level, surface level, so to speak, of um, being present with them, being accepting, and hopefully not adding on to that traumatic experience by um, disenfranchising this person, invalidating, um, being a safe person. From a clinical viewpoint, um, it kind of depends on where you start with someone. So if they've done significant work already, just like Josh was saying, you want it to be an integrated, be an integrated part of your experience. How integrated a person is when they come into treatment really, really, impacts where you start with them in the healing process. So if someone is not integrated at all and they're not very aware of their experiences physically, emotionally, you have to start there Mm -hmm. because part of processing trauma is you're going to get um, hopefully intimately acquainted with how you experience those things physiologically and emotionally. And so people that, that haven't ventured into that going into their body going into their emotions is really scary and oftentimes dysregulating Mm. because part of part of the way we tend to cope when we have long 
um, chronic, when we have a history of trauma, is our body is constantly giving us information and talking to us. But if it's constantly saying, you're unsafe, you're in danger, a lot of times we have to put some distance between us and that stimuli or that information that the body is giving so that we can cope and we can just get through the day. Mm -hmm. And whatever that looks like, go to work, operate your car, care for kids, do whatever. And so part of that first step clinically is to help people, um, first off, befriend their nervous system and know that this is a safe environment. And it that takes a significant amount of time just because the minute you overwhelm the system, you're sending that person right back into fight or flight or immobilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it takes some like being careful and gentle with the way that we address mm-hmm. this. We can't just be like, all right, tomorrow we'll be cured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not like a we're going to um, throw you in the deep end of the pool and see if you can swim. Hopefully you make it to the side. If you don't, we'll rescue you, but we're going to let you take on, take on some water first. No, it's like we're going to just dip our toe in the shallow end and then we're going to bring it back out and we're going to go so slowly that we acclimate to the experience and we don't overwhelm the system and re-traumatize the person. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times that's something that can happen is we, like Josh said, we tend to intellectualize things. We think we can think our way or um, logic our way out of our pain and we just want to get through it. And that actually is way more damaging than helpful. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, too, if that's part of why we don't really have this eagerness to address trauma just in general is because it takes so much time. And a lot of times we're used to what is instant, what is Mm -hmm. um, immediate, instead of being like willing to enter into this however long process, because it could be an indefinite amount of time. yeah, and it, and it really demands a flexibility. It demands me changing, right? Mm-hmm. Whether I'm working on this in myself or working with this with somebody else mm-hmm. um, or just somebody else experienced it that's close to me, it demands that I change to some extent. That re- requires a humility and openness a curiosity, these types of character qualities that not everybody has or have practiced a lot. Um, but oftentimes we want the solution to be quick and simple, like you're saying, um, or painless. Um, and most of the time that means somebody else needs to change so I can stay the same. Mm. And and when we start talking about trauma or when we start experiencing it face-to-face with a person in our small group, um, our children, our parents, um, we start recognizing that our world has to expand in how we think about things, that we are – uh, we're very resilient, but we're also susceptible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it demands that, that we adjust and change. Yeah. So how might somebody like take those uh, initial steps to cultivating those qualities that you're talking about, the humility and things like that? Well, listening to this podcast would be one of those, right? <laughs> Expanding some of our understanding. Um, but like what Andy was talking about in the first steps of 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 working with trauma is identifying it, creating safety and stability. And those can be really long. That, that can be a really long phase in the, the, the trauma journey. Mm-hmm. And so that requires um, evaluating it. That requires making sure that I'm not continuing to be in an unsafe place that's where that's keeping my brain in this fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, and, uh, and, um, and so cultivating a safe place with some safe people relationship is almost always a part of that. Mm. I would say usually that safety is um, 
is is with a counselor experienced almost almost first and foremost um, is the first time that they're experiencing a true safe and empathetic experience but it can be with other people um, but it has to yeah that's that's a big part of the first steps and so if somebody has already been doing work on understanding themselves or they've been doing work on accepting themselves um, they their their work on on accepting that they have value, they are starting at a different place. Maybe they're not putting mm-hmm. their toe in the water; they're putting their foot in the water and then pulling it back. Um, but those would be parts of that. And then, for let's say, let's say I'm talking about somebody who's experiencing a person who's experienced trauma, not my own. Um, then, it's the, in order to garner more of that flexibility or curiosity. The big part on that is not oversimplifying a complex problem hmm. so that I can understand it or so that I can have a sound bite or a TikTok or a here's what you need to do so that I can feel better about myself. So uh, I would say continuing that thought is I need to be comfortable with with discomfort, both mine and somebody else's. Okay. Yeah. Anything to add to that for steps people can take? Yeah, I think that's huge. That piece of being comfortable with the discomfort starts with you. Mm-hmm. So Brene Brown talks about how um, when we are going to empathize with someone, it's challenging because it forces us to get in touch with the feeling that they're experiencing within ourselves. So if I, um, you know, if I'm if I'm going to be an empathic listener that requires that humility because I have to touch that pain in myself. And if I'm not willing to do that, then that's going to interfere with my ability to be a safe landing spot for someone. And as a professional, part of the reason we don't work with family and friends is so we can create some of that professional distance. Um, It's harder at times to be an empathic, understanding person with a good friend or a family member because their life intimately impacts my life. Mm -hmm. So if I'm listening to their struggle with an illness, it's it's impacting them and I'm sad for them, but I'm also sad for myself because their illness impacts my life. Mm-hmm. If it's someone who I don't have a relationship with outside of the professional dynamic, then I can be a little more removed and get in touch with that in an abstract way. But that's a huge piece of humility because I have to stand in that place of I'm finite. Mm-hmm. Like any of this could happen to me at any time and I'm vulnerable. And that just, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't like that aspect of our humanity, having limits and yeah, having things that are out of our control. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to, um, I think, nuance a couple of things. We've used the term complex to refer to just the fact that trauma is complicated and it's nuanced and it's layered. Um, but I think you also alluded to complex trauma, um, maybe as a category. So um, Andy, could you kind of describe the, the different ways that we're using that term? Yeah, so um, there's the nuance and the complexity that it's not cut and dry and everybody has a different experience and it's subjective. But there's also complex trauma where someone might experience um, trauma that continues over a number of years. It includes multiple facets of different um, areas in which they are impacted. And it could be complex from the perspective that they don't have as many resources to be able to address the complexity of the situation. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Mm-hmm. So is that, a would you say, a type of chronic trauma? Or is it distinct from chronic? It really depends on who you're... <laughs> who you're reading. <laughs> yeah, who you're reading. Yeah. Um, some authors will distinguish complex as having a, a long-term, but also... Um, it would be connected with somebody who would be younger and it would be affecting their development. So mm-hmm. complex trauma would be affecting development. Um, but a, a lot of times when people are talking about complex trauma, it's exactly that. It's affecting all of these different areas, very, um, uh, the, the, all of these different areas at the same time, right? And so, um, yeah, so, so. Th- people use complex trauma often to point to a, more of the, chronic but severe aspects Mm -hmm. because it's far-reaching yeah Mm -hmm. okay and then adding in developmental trauma which some people will use that term to talk about trauma that happens during the early years of formation so technically um, development never stops because the brain is always plastic and changing or potentially changing to some extent for some people (laughs) for some people (laughs) yes with the right circumstances and the willingness but like early in life, um, we know that the brain is still going to continue to form and development, develop up until like 25 or 30 years old. So trauma that happens during those formative years is going to have a different effect potentially than other trauma because it shapes how that brain forms. It shapes how a person views the world that mm-hmm. they live in. Um, and it's not to say that you couldn't have a life-altering viewpoint of the world later in life. Sure. It just, um, it really impacts attachment, which is how we anticipate relationships going for the rest of our lives. Those form early in life. Um, So that can be a little bit more tricky to work with. It can have more longstanding um, repercussions because of when it occurs during the lifespan. Mm -hmm. So at the risk of oversimplifying, um, you're saying that developmental trauma is really significant for people potentially because they're shaping how they might view the world for the rest of their lives. So if this, uh, like something happens with a caregiver or whatever, they're like, oh, all adults must be like this. Mm-hmm. When in reality, maybe an adult who experiences a similar thing would already have the resources to realize, okay, that because this one person mm-hmm. is this way, it doesn't mean everyone is this way. Yeah. Well, or, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Or they might be saying, I deserve this. Mm. Right. Whereas an adult, I might not say I deserved that. But as a child, that might be the first message that I experience. I must deserve this. Yeah. They have a mistaken view. And then that gets carried on forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and some of why someone might say that is because God has uniquely situated us within the context of relationships. We have to have relationships to survive. Um, that's not even just thriving, like survive without significant relationships and the care you need from those. In the worst case scenario, children have failure to thrive and they die. Um, so how we 
because God put us under the care of other people and because we are the only species that takes this long to be um, independent, we are very much at the mercy of how we experience those main caregivers and that we need in some ways to believe that the people that are taking care of us love us and have our good at heart. And so a lot of times it's not uncommon for people who have experienced developmental trauma to take on the blame or to think it must be internally about me as opposed to about my caregiver. Like like Josh said, as an adult, I can have a bad experience with someone and think, wow, that was not cool. Like, <laughs> I did not like how they treated me. That really hurt. That wasn't okay. There is something not okay with them. We need to believe that our, our parents, our caregivers are going to protect us. And when they don't, we tend to turn that self-talk inward to blame ourselves more so than others because we need to protect their image in our minds. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah, not unlike how we image spiritual leaders throughout the lifespan too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you wanna unpack that a little more? Yes. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, we there's a special um, significance that, and it may not be only spiritual leaders, but with spiritual leaders, we ascribe authority, we anticipate that they will be safe, and they have a lot of power in our lives. And when they don't um, live out how we need them to be and how we anticipate them being, because they probably have their own trauma that's unresolved they can leave a significant um, negative impact that can be very traumatizing that is different than maybe other folks could have in our lives. Because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a unique position that, uh, that people have and, um, I mean, a really significant role to steward, right? Mm -hmm. But it also is connected to our identity, mm. right? This, there's, this is the person that we have as the face of what I'm believing about this community is maybe even a voice piece for some of the things that I identify with. And so when things start happening, to me from this person or when I find out that this person has done things to other people that can um, affect and negatively impact my own identity. It can be like when Andy was talking about this for a child, it can be this, wait, my world is not what I thought my world was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a sense of betrayal, even if it wasn't directly something against you, but the idea that, oh, this person wasn't doing what I thought they were doing or, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, what are y'all's, I guess, advice for how to, um, yeah, how to address people in that situation? Is there um, a change in the way that we should view spiritual authority, or is it just a matter of um, as things come up, um, like addressing them that way? Hmm. Well, I think if we oversimplify, um, if we think that trauma is something that you just get over or it's relegated to the past, um, we, it starts changing the way we think or the standard that we hold other people to. Um, so recognizing that most likely people that are in places of authority or power or have, have quite a bit of lived experience, they have experienced their own things. And so not thinking that they've somehow missed it or that everybody's operating out of a healthy, congruent personhood. Um, so, so part of it should be us not putting people up on a pedestal mm -hmm. um, or thinking that if, if somebody has the right theology, they're not going to experience some type of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then there is still an aspect of, depending on what we're talking about, there's an aspect of I'm going to be gracious and still choose to engage in relationship with this person. And then there are also the aspect of that, depending on the circumstances, this person might be very dangerous for me to engage with and continue a relationship with. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going case to depend case. a lot on mm-hmm. the circumstances, the person, and my own ability to re- to to relate um, with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great kind of jumping off point to to kind of self reflect, um, because many people who may listen to this podcast or um, who are part of our community are people of influence into other people's lives. And so to ask that question, where are my blind spots? Where are Where is there woundedness that may not have been my fault, but it is my responsibility to deal with it um, and to, to be humble in that way and to maybe ask some really uncomfortable, hard questions of, of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are other ways that you would um, encourage people to reflect as they um, are listening and processing all this? Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is to reflect on in a kind way to yourself, mm. because that whole piece, I, th- I think there is a piece that we, no matter what community you're a part of, there is a certain a part a certain aspect of a stigma that we tend to other people in a way that who have experienced mm-hmm. trauma of oh well you know if you're strong enough then you wouldn't have that response or you would have been able to withstand that um, and to to really know that it's not about strength it's not about um, goodness or virtue it it's a part of living in a broken world mm-hmm. and to be safe enough in yourself where you can acknowledge that, you know, I've had some woundedness and it's okay to validate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really don't, I believe wholeheartedly we can't give away that which we don't possess. And so if, if I have a hard time validating my own experiences and trauma, it's gonna be hard for me to do that for someone else. Sure. Yeah, anything to add to that, Josh? Um, I think I think the emphasis on self is, is a great place to go on that and that is recognizing that some of my knee-jerk responses to hearing news of a particular person might be something that's been in me for a while that I haven't been addressing and so I might have an exaggerated response or it might it might be a response that I don't fully understand or it might be different than other people's responses that I've been interacting with or it might be in my my circle or my community and that could be a uh, a neon sign saying hey this this is not doesn't just have to be about this other person this is rubbing up on some of my stuff Mm-hmm. So like self in the, not in like a selfish way, like focusing only on myself, but in like a sense of stewardship, um, mm-hmm. that if I, in whatever roles I happen to have, whatever, um, yeah, whatever capacities, whatever tasks are, um, yeah, at my disposal, then it's my job to to do it to the best of my ability to reflect on, you know, who I am, how God has made me and um, yeah, the, the things that have happened and how best to, to address them. Because like you said, while it may not be someone's fault, it is still a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, what are y'all's, uh, I guess, encouragements to people for how to identify in trauma? I know we've talked about a number of different um, types of trauma, a number of different ways that it might play out. Um, but yeah, if somebody's looking for the first time trying to do this introspection, um, yeah, how would you help them identify trauma? Um, I think some of the key things that pop up in our body is going to be uh, like awareness or my heart start beating, I might start getting sweaty, or my hands might start getting cold on something. Um, it could be a memory that pops up routinely. So growing up, I, I got in this car accident in, in Atlanta, up going up 400. Um, I got in this pretty big car accident as a 17-year-old. And... And I go back, I still have family in Atlanta, and I will be even in an Uber with somebody else driving from the airport up to my parents' house. And all of a sudden, I'll be like, wait, what's going on? And it is, I'm like, oh, I'm coming up on the stretch of highway where I got in an accident. Mm -hmm. And so, like, my body's telling me, Before hey, you even here's this thing. And I'm like, what is going Oh, yeah, that's that. Um, and then it happens here in Dallas when I experience a, a a skid on the road or something like that mm -hmm. i'm like oh this thing this thing is is still here right like i, I there's still this uh safety response that says there, there, this has been this has been impactful for you before mm -hmm. and so i think looking physically there's those types of of triggers and i yeah what would you add to that yeah i think that's a great example mm -hmm. the body always talks first um, and a lot of times that's our first um, neon sign, so to speak, of there's something going on because it takes a couple minutes for our um, conscious brain to catch up with what's going. So paying attention to what your body says. And some of that is just being aware. A lot of times we're really disconnected from our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is, uh, to borrow from Jamie Smith, he says we're not just brains on a stick, but I think sometimes we like to live like we are. So being aware of, you know, what is the sensation I feel in this moment? Um, uh, Peter Levine has a great book, little tiny book called Healing Trauma. And a lot of it is really befriending your body and your nervous system in the sense of um, just getting used to like what it feels like to feel water run across your arm because we can be so disconnected as a mode of safety. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's really adaptive. Um, that we don't even know what that's like, but just you know, getting used to that and getting used to um, this is what my body says when I'm interacting with a skid. Um, also, too, sometimes our brains don't consciously remember things, but even seasons, seasonally, things really impact us, especially depending upon the time of year. So, if there's been a significant event that was traumatic that happened during the fall, as as you start to venture into the fall, or faux fall, what we have here, um, <laughs> summer 2.0, um, your body may start to, you may not be sleeping as well. You may have changes in your eating patterns. Um, you uh, notice that maybe you just uh, have like a little low grade depression in the sense of like, it's not horrible, I can still get through the day, but I just don't feel like myself. Mm-hmm sleep patterns mm -hmm. um, or you might be experiencing this in relationship with other people they might your your response might be something that you don't intend so you might be going back and apologizing for 
a statement you made or the tone of your voice when you were doing something because it felt like an automatic response and not one that I was intentional with. It might even at sometimes feel like it was out of character. Mm-hmm. So all of those experiences, um, I would say, indi- can be uh, indicators uh, that that something that a nerve inside me has been touched mm-hmm. or brushed and um, and something's going on with me. Yeah, those are really helpful examples to help people connect with, okay, how this might actually feel, um, yeah, for somebody identifying trauma for the first time. Um, what would then be the the next step that you would encourage them in, um, besides obviously practicing this? It's not like a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if it's never been addressed, then part of it is to find a safe therapist mm-hmm. who can really help you move into that space and and explore what the trauma is. If it is something that um, you have processed through and you have addressed, this is this is an ongoing experience throughout the lifespan that there are just seasons and times where you need to be extra kind to yourself. Mm. And so looking for ways that you can put margin into your world. So um, sometimes this is life stage and um, you know that it's uh, – going to pass and eventually you won't need as much margin and then sometimes if you're dealing with let's say a chronic illness that's never going to be resolved you may need to um, rearrange some of your values and priorities in the sense of you sleep longer you do more Um, I have a family member who is going through cancer treatment and she has coined herself a stay-at-home cancer patient Mm. and we laugh about it but that is a great example of self-care through a traumatic experience Mm -hmm. yeah I wish we had more time to talk through all of these different things but would each of you have maybe one last encouragement to our our listeners as we kind of conclude our time here my encouragement would be for for the listener to grow in their own self-awareness that oftentimes we try to bypass the awareness and bypass our own processing of what has taken place and jump into focusing on other people and what we're doing with that is we're avoiding things for ourselves um, and often causing more harm so um so not thinking that this is a process that can be rushed or there are steps that can be bypassed. This is a, a long and difficult process that requires me to be aware and, and flexible. And, um, and so if I try to cut steps, um, I'm prolonging that for myself and for others. Mm-hmm. And to not think that, um, that I can go through these steps with other people that there are some steps for me, like emphasizing maintaining a place of safety, maintaining a relationship that's authentic and vulnerable, maintaining stability for a person, but not going in and thinking that we're going to go process somebody else's trauma. Mm, sure. Yeah. I'm hearing you say a lot about patience and yeah, being willing to be flexible. Yeah. I think some sometimes the biggest thing that we need is somebody to sit with us and hold our hand or to just say, well, let's just let's just go for a walk and we're not even going to talk about this. You just need somebody to be with you Mm -hmm. and I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Andy? I love that. Um, I would say that, I mean, this is a difficult path to walk and healing takes time. So to be really patient in that process, but also know there are ways to heal that are not going to be re-traumatizing. Mm. Um, there's, it's not like a, 
no pain, no gain kind of thing. <laughs> uh, we're gonna we want to make it hurt really bad, and that means we're healing. Um, no, the healing process shouldn't be so overstimulating that it's re-traumatizing someone. So I think sometimes that fear of what am I getting myself into is really scary. But there are ways to to walk this pathway and to process and to heal that will not be re-traumatizing. Yeah, there's hope for people. It's mm-hmm. not just that you have to live with it forever, but yeah. that. Yeah, I think if, if we're thinking of it in terms of like a knee replacement, mm-hmm. right? I have this physical thing that has been that has happened to my knee, and now I'm going to go through physical rehab. A lot of times what that physical therapist is doing is telling us to go slower than we want to do. They're saying this is the safe way of doing this, like what Andy was saying. We're going to dip our toe in and bring it out. We're not going to start doing a whole bunch of exercises. And that's the benefit of having a third party like a professional that you're working with and um, who's going to walk on that slow journey with you mm-hmm. as opposed to oftentimes our knee-jerk reaction, which is, oh, you just share everything all at once and then tomorrow you're going to feel better because oftentimes tomorrow you don't feel better as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, to use the word complex again, it's <laughs> because of the complexity of, of trauma, um, whether you're looking at your own life, whether you're looking at other people. Um, I mean, I think that what you're both highlighting is being patient and gracious and still being hopeful for the fact that there can be recovery, even though trauma is a universal reality of living in a broken world. Um, and it come from, comes from a lot of different sources, uh, can look a lot of different ways, um, but there's still, yeah, still hope, mm-hmm. still hope for healing. So I want to thank each of you guys for being guests today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And we want to thank you guys, our listeners, for joining us today. We hope that you'll join us next time on The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.